there's a big note here that says, don't forget to dismiss the children. <laughs> oh, it's a joy to be here today. Um, let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, and I'll read our text, verses 24 to 29, Colossians 1, 24 to 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Um. Like I said, it's a joy to be here today. Uh, my name is Andre. I'm one of the pastoral interns at Living Word Bible Church, um, and I oversee youth and young adult ministries there, along with doing some preaching. Me and one other um, young guy, we are, we're also studying part-time at the Southern Seminary. So we are students. We're, we're the least of the, the pastors or authorities that get to speak but I am really, really glad, really um, joyful to be here and to share this text with you guys. Um, when Jeremy sent me the outline of all the different passages that were available, I, I jumped on the opportunity when I saw this passage because it's one of my favorites in all of Scripture. It's, it's a really special passage because it is so full of doctrinal truth, um, it is so full of the same things that, are f that the whole book of Colossians is full of, but it's also a very personal piece of the letter. Uh, it, it's a spot where Paul really shares his heart, his own personal life with the church. So it's a very, very wonderful text. Um, as you guys have been hearing these last couple of weeks, the, the letter of Colossians itself is a very personal letter like most of Paul's writings. And... Um, it's a letter that is full of Paul's excitement for the church, that he is seeing progress, that he is seeing the work that God is doing. He is so uh, thrilled, he's joyful that, that God's gospel, that, that, that Christ is working, that the Spirit of God is working in the church and producing fruit, as you've seen in chapter 1. But it's also uh, filled with a concern that Paul has for the churches, that though they are growing in Christ, though they are growing in the gospel, in fruit, in ministry, there, there are things that are happening in the church. There are ideas or philosophies or practices that are creeping in subtly into the church which are causing the Christians to, to change their view of Christ, to, to very subtly not look at Christ and not see Christ in his fullness, to not really know and appreciate and live out the full glory of Christ. Now, the thing about um, false teaching, the thing about ideas that, that creep into the church 
that will often distort a Christian's perspective is that it, they are very tricky because very rarely does, does an idea or, or, or false teaching arrive at the front door of the church uh, under the title of a book that just, you know, says another gospel by Sam Heretic. Um, false ideas and heresy in the church over the past 2,000 years, as we can see, it, it oftentimes takes a very subtle and tricky form, and it comes into the church through, through ideas, through practices, through stories, through experiences that will captivate people's imaginations, that will, that will grab hold of people's affections, that will, that will entice their desires, and very subtly lead their hearts in a different direction. Oftentimes, um, you know, even in, in, times, in our times, you can, you can see how this happens. It, it happens through a certain individual, a dynamic maybe teacher, a dynamic teacher who has gifts and, and can, can really present and speak to the heart and really um, captivates people's hearts and affections and imaginations. And, and that's the interesting thing. I think oftentimes when we think of false teaching, when we think of heresy, when we think of churches going off in, in wrong directions, we think of it as an intellectual process, that we have accepted an idea that is false. But the reality is, as humans, God has made us creatures of desire, not just creatures of thought and intellect. Um, as one Christian philosopher uh, recently has written, he says, you know, we're not just brains on a stick. When the Bible speaks of the very center of, of what it means to be human, it doesn't say your brains. It doesn't say your mind nearly as often as it says your hearts, your affections. And that, that is oftentimes how a Christian, how a whole Christian ministry can, can veer off the path is when our hearts and desires, when our affections are awakened to things that are almost correct, but subtly off. And, and like a compass, the heart starts to lead us in a slightly different direction. When we, when we read the book of Colossians, you don't see that Paul isn't saying that they've outright denied Jesus. They haven't denied the gospel. But he is genuinely concerned. He is genuinely concerned. Because certain ideas, practices, impressions, stories have maybe started to make their way into the church that have altered the compass of the affections of the hearts of the people. And that's really oftentimes how we change as, as people. I think many of us, most of us, probably can identify with the frustrating experience of having your mind tell you one thing, knowing something to be true, and yet you continue to behave in a way that is completely different. Why do I keep doing that? Why do I, I know it's wrong. Why do I keep doing it? You know? We often have this, this, this conundrum, this, this division between what we know to be true in our mind and the direction that our heart takes us and our desires take us. And Paul understands this. Paul understands that we are not just brains on a stick. Paul understands that true human change happens through, through the whole person, through the heart and through the mind, through the affections and through the understanding. And as he writes this letter, one of, the, one of the things that we can see here is that Paul is trying to unite the Christian's mind of understanding that Christ 
is Lord, that Christ is real, he is true, he is the real and risen Savior. And he's also trying to unite that fact, that historic fact, with the whole heart of, of the people, the whole heart of the church, to say that Christ is the most beautiful and most amazing thing that can ever captivate your heart. That it is in Christ alone that we find, as he says in here, all the riches of wisdom and knowledge, that, that joy and satisfaction and contentment and meaning and richness comes only in Christ and in his gospel and in the life of his church. So, uh, he wants us to be captivated, not in our minds only, but in our whole affection, in our whole being. And how he does that is not only by presenting this amazing picture of who Jesus is in the first chapter, but also then taking a whole almost 10 verses to talk about himself, his own life. Paul, in other words, is saying, look, Jesus is Lord of the universe. He holds the universe together. He is the savior of all. He is bringing redemption into the world. And look, look at what he's done to me. Look at what he has done in my life. So in this text, we get to see a picture of Paul's life, Paul's heart, Paul's ministry. And I wanted to divide and work our way through the text, not as we usually do maybe, uh, verses 24 through 29 consecutively, but I wanted to start from the heart of the text and work outward from there. What is Paul showing us here about himself, and how does this portrait of Paul supposed to drive our weekly lives, our weekly habits and practices of following Jesus <clears throat> in a very confused world that often denies him and often distracts us to go in a different direction? So we're going to see three things. We're going to look at Paul's heart, Paul's words, and Paul's hands as we work through this text. First of all, Paul's heart, captivated by Christ. When you look at the very center of this text, when you look at the very thing that moves it, the energy, the, the engine that makes it all tick, the, the thing that makes it all work, you see that Paul's whole life is captivated by the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is not just the, the Jesus who holds the universe. This is the Jesus that holds Paul's heart, and that's what he's trying to say, that this is not just an idea or a cause that I'm working for in my intellectual component, in my career, in my spare time. He says, my whole heart, my affections, my life is bound up with this Savior. Look how amazing he is. Look how wonderful he is. Notice how Paul describes his mission uh, in verses 24, 25, and 26. He says in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. When you look at Paul as an individual, when, you, when we read our New Testament, when we read the book of Acts and you read Paul's other letters, you see that Paul was an immensely productive person. I mean, this guy was driven. He, the, he, he was just on the move all the time. He was always thinking, speaking, reaching out to people, building ministries, organizing people. I mean, he was just a driven person. He was a mover in the full sense of the word. If he was, if he was alive today, you know, he, his ministry would be trying to captivate every 
every opportunity that he can to present the gospel, to share the good news. He would be on YouTube. He would be on Instagram. He would be on Facebook. He would be in the streets. He would be feeding the homeless. He would be preaching on Sunday mornings. I mean, this guy was, was working, on, firing on all cylinders and working in a variety of ways. His ministry encompassed everything. It wasn't just, he wasn't just a preacher. He wasn't just a scholar. He wasn't just a writer. You know, when you look at his life, he was very dynamic. He was very driven. He was very productive. And when you look at a guy like that, you always have to wonder what is it that makes him tick? What, what moves him? What is his motivation? What drives him? And at the very center of this text, and, and, and you see this, this simple, it's very simple, clear idea that Paul says, what is it that makes me tick? What is it that moves me? He says this, Jesus Christ and his good news of salvation and reconciliation to all. Even though Paul himself was a theologian and, and, and preacher and teacher, he knew so much Old Testament, New Testament. He wrote a huge chunk of the Old Testament. He had direct revelation from God. He was wise in the fullest sense of the word when we speak from, from perspective that God revealed truth to Paul. And yet, when it comes down to it, when it comes down to saying, why do I do what I do? What, what, what moves me? What captivates me? It's Christ. Christ and his mission to save and reconcile all who believe in him. This was not just something that he did for a paycheck on Sunday morning. Actually, when we read the other epistles, I think it was Thessalonians, Paul says, guys, I ministered to you all day long, and then I worked the night shift making tents so I could buy some food. I did not accept any, any money from you guys. I mean, he, he was so driven, he was so captivated by Christ that he was willing to oftentimes to work at night, to work overtime, to work extra hours, making tents. He was a tent maker by trade. And, and actually, I think the other interesting thing about that is that, you know, originally he's a scholar. Originally, Paul is, is, was trained to be a Jewish leader, a scholar. Paul was not originally a tradesman and a tent maker. But he picked up, it, it seems like, I mean, we don't have direct explanation, but how he picked up this tent making business on the side in order to fuel his ministry to proclaim Jesus. So he was willing to do something that most Jewish scholars are probably not interested in doing, making tents, because he was so on fire to make Christ known to serve people and to not be a hindrance to anybody. He understood, he understood the simple yet revolutionary fact that if Jesus, if Jesus is real, historically, if Jesus really happened, if he really came into this world, died for our sins, was raised on the third day and ascended unto the heaven, if he is Lord right now over the whole universe, that changes everything. And there's not a single aspect of his life that is not captivated by that simple fact. And his whole life was captive to this fact. His whole life was just amazed by this central story, that Christ is saving, that Christ is redeeming, and he is doing that by, by, by bringing to life sinners who do not know him. As God reconciles us dead and rebellious sinners to himself, he wakes us up also to everything that is good and beautiful and true. That, that he understood that, that this is the very center of everything. He understood that 
the whole Old Testament, that, that all the problems that we see in the world today, they all bottleneck, they all come at a head at Christ because everything started from the, the rebellious sinful heart that decided to live independently of God back in Genesis 3. And so Paul understands that if Jesus is true, if Jesus is the Savior that came into this world to pay for our sin and reconcile us with our Maker, that this is the key, this is, this is the thing that unlocks everything in life. This is what reconciles us back to God. This is what reconciles us back to the glory of God, the glory of God in all things, and reconciles us to the beauty of life, the beauty of creation, the beauty of everything that God is doing all around us. Everything comes through Christ. Everything comes through the gospel. So the gospel is not just a message that takes us out of hell into heaven. It is the message, the one and only message that by transforming our hearts and redeeming us and reuniting us with our maker, it is the message that changes everything. And Paul isn't just intellectually processing that. He is captivated by that. His heart, his mind, his affections, he is amazed. And he says, I get to proclaim the riches of the glory of this mystery. He doesn't just say, I get to preach Jesus. He can't just say it because it's not just Jesus. Jesus is everything, riches and glory and wonder and joy and meaning. Secular scholar Jordan Peterson recently said this statement. Um, he's not a Christian, but he, he has this tendency to ask really, really difficult questions and pro say provocative things to the culture today. And, and he said this thing. He said, you know, people really start freaking out when you ask the simple questions. When you, when you, when you ask the simple questions, when you ask the basic, when you, when you point to the thing that we stand on every day, the assumptions that we stand on every day, and you ask, why that? And I think for us as Christians, I think we, we go through, the, we, we, we maybe as followers of Christ for many years, if, if you've been in the church, if you're raised in the church, and you've heard the gospel many times, we start to shift and we start to think, yeah, 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 Jesus, I get it. I'm, I'm saved. Let's move on to more interesting things. We, we, we hear the gospel so many times that we think that there are other things that are more captivating to our hearts. We fall into the lie and believe that Christ is not the key to all joy and beauty and wonder. What is our life essentially about? And to the Christian, again, Jesus. But, but can we really say that? Can we really, as we look at our lives today, as we evaluate our hearts, can we really say that the reason I am alive, the, re the, the thing that I live for in all, wherever my calling is, either as, you know, as a parent or as somebody in my career field or anything that I'm doing, can I, can I clearly trace the line back to Christ and the gospel and the kingdom of God? I am living for that. I am living in whatever area God has put me in order to be an ambassador of his kingdom. And as one who is amazed by this central storyline of life, that Jesus is saving, that he is Lord over my soul, that he is king of kings and Lord of lords, and that he is coming back. He is coming back into this world to judge the living and the dead. He is coming back to make all things new. And even now, as I await the return of this king, his kingdom is already breaking into this world. His kingdom is already breaking into the brokenness of this world 
through the preaching of the gospel, the transformation of sinners into saints, the building up of the body of Christ, the growth of Christians in maturity. Through that, the glorious eternal kingdom of Christ is breaking into this world. And we are part of that. And so do we see that as our central story today? Do we see that and do we ask, Lord, in this story, in your gospel message, how specifically do you want to use me in my life today? What are the specific ways that you want to put your gospel and the glory of Christ on display through my life? Very easily, we get distracted. And, and, and th these are questions, this is a question that is worth freaking out about. This is a simple, core, foundational question that should make Christians freak out, reevaluate, stop, pause, because we are still plagued by sin. And as C.S. Lewis says, we are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily distracted by social media, by our jobs, by careers, by money, by things, by vacations. All those things are wonderful in their own sense, but apart from the central saving message of Christ, everything falls flat. So what holds our heart today? That's the question we want to ask first of all. What holds my heart? Yes, I understand the gospel to be true, but, but is the gospel message the thing that grabs hold of my heart? Is it the thing that awakens my affections? Number two, we see here in this text as we move outward, Paul's words proclaiming the life-changing glory of Christ. As you have probably noticed, there are two core topics in this text. First of all, he is, he is just amazed by Christ and the gospel. But the other major dominating idea in this text is Paul's ministry, is Paul's work and Paul's labor. And the fact that these two subjects are locked into one inseparable text is very, actually very, very important. It's a, it's a very important point that we need to see for ourselves today. Oftentimes, we live in a culture today that tries to separate the public and the private. We often hear things like, I don't care what you believe, as long as you love people and do good. You can believe whatever you want. Um, what does it matter what you believe? You know, your personal values, your personal beliefs are your own. The main thing is what we do as a, as a community, as a, as a nation, as a culture. Or maybe in the church, we'll see more subtle forms of this when people say something like, we need less doctrine and teaching, less talking and more doing, more action. The reality is, though, that all of our activity flows out of our hearts. Everything we do is only the result of the thing that grabs hold of our affections, imaginations, desires. We're, we're always doing the things we want at, at the end of the day. So you can't ever separate what, is, what fills your heart and what you, what, what you do with your hands, what you do with your life. And our ministry, our life, our lifestyle, always is just a result of the thing that is, is most dominant in our hearts. And Paul says, look how, look how Paul describes, look at the words he uses to describe his ministry. He says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Later down in the text, he says, him we proclaim, warning everyone 
and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So for Paul, there's a very important point here. That for Paul, there's a very clear and vivid line of connection that you cannot separate between the fact that God has opened and revealed the gospel to Paul, that the gospel's entered Paul's life, and the fact that that gospel must be proclaimed, that gospel must be shared, that gospel must be given out, that gospel must be made communicated and made vivid to the world around, both to Christians in his life and to the non-Christian people that he interacts with. There's a clear line of connection that this gospel must be proclaimed, that he must get it to as many people as possible. I mean, the word, I, I just love that the word choice here in, in verse 28, he says, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He's very ambitious. He is very ambitious here. There is no limit. He says, I want to preach this Jesus to everyone all the way down into their hearts so that not only they hear about him, not only do they accept him, but they are completely transformed by him. But why? Why, why is it that this gospel message comes with this, this inevitability of communication? Why does it come with such an imperative that, that the gospel is not just a thing for me to hear, to receive, and to internalize in my own life. Why is it that Christ must be made known to all? What is the logical connection there? The answer comes in the beautiful way that Paul summarizes the very essence of God's work in the gospel, the very heart of what is God doing in verse 27, end of verse 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we may ask, what is, what is Jesus' essential mission in the world today? What is he accomplishing? What is the most powerful way that he is putting himself on display? If, if I am to be a person who says, I, I love Christ and I, I, I want to give my life to him, I want to live a life that understands and knows Christ more and more, how do I see his glory most beautifully? How do I see Christ in action most clearly? Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. In other words, Christ must be proclaimed to all. Why? Because the glory of Jesus shines most powerfully, most beautifully, most amazingly through the transformed lives of his people. If you want to see Christ, if you want to know Christ, you go and you see how Christ is transforming sinners, how he is making sinners into saints. That is the central way that God has chosen to put his love and mercy and glory on display by, by transforming us. And so if I, if I am a, a, a person who wants to see Christ at work, if I want to really love God and, and really get to know Christ, you have to see that God is in the business of saving and transforming sinners that God is building his church, that it is through this saving act when we come to hear the gospel, believe and trust ourselves, that it is through that act, that kingdom, that redemption is coming into this world. And that really makes sense because all brokenness, all all pain and all suffering that we see in the world around us, 
all, all of that started with the heart that separated itself from God. The idea in Genesis 3, in Eden, the, the, the essence of sin is that it's not just that you broke a rule. The essence of sin is that I want to live independently of my maker. I don't need him. I can be my own little God. I can be my own little dictator. I can choose what is good and evil and, and what is good for me. So the very essence of all brokenness came from that. And so it is through that that God is bringing redemption and renewal into the whole world. It is through the transforming work of Christ in the hearts of people. It is through the life of the church. It is through the regular, weekly love and prayer and support and edification of, of, of the saints that the amazing eternal kingdom of Christ is coming into a broken world. That is why Paul says, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The radical word choice comes because Paul's radical love for Jesus is inseparably connected to his radical love for the local church because you can't separate the two. If I claim to love Christ but have no interest in the local church, have no interest in the work of Christ and other people around me, I have a different Christ because Christ is saving sinners. Christ is, is bringing his good news into the lives of others and, and reconciling us with God. And notice that this isn't just evangelism. It's not just about proclaiming Jesus to people who don't know him. It's about the whole life. Paul says, I want to proclaim the whole Jesus to the whole Christian life and make you perfect. Obviously, he's not going to achieve that in this life, but he says nothing short of perfection will do because all of Christ needs to shine through you. And we don't have to be I think we understand. We don't have to be the Apostle Paul to engage in this amazing work. To, to be part of the body of Christ and to be an individual who has the work of the Spirit working in his heart and just to live out the normal Christian life, to love God, to pray, to read your Bible, to love your family, to speak the gospel to your neighbor who doesn't know Christ, to pray for your brother and sister in the church for their needs, to edify, to speak truth to a somebody who is stuck in difficulty or in sin, those regular normal actions of the life of the local church are where the kingdom of God is coming into this world. Those regular activities of the local church are where Christ is making himself known in the most beautiful way. So the mission of Paul is the mission of the whole church, it's the mission of every single one of us. We are all invited if we have Christ in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The central drive of Paul's ministry is the model for the central drive of the Christian life and for the church. And it's an important note to make, I think, um, as we think about the mission of the church, as we think about um, proper teaching. Um, when the church loses its focus off of the gospel, when the church loses its focus off the redeeming, transforming work of Jesus and the beauty that that, that that contains and the power that that has in the whole world, when the church forgets that, the church will slide, inevitably slide. Uh, one of the buzzwords uh, among young Christians today is social justice, that, that uh, it's so hypocritical that we often want to proclaim Jesus, but we have no, no care for people who are less fortunate, 
uh, people who are poor or hungry. It is so true, to be fair, it is so true that Jesus cares about justice. James talks clearly about the fact that we must give our lives to those who, who have needs around us. It is hypocritical to be a follower of Christ, but to withhold the goods for, and, 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 and to not minister to the needy in your city and in your town. That is very true. But the moment we start to think that achieving social change and feeding hungry people and building wells is more important than seeing people get saved and meeting the Savior, we have lost our mission. The, mo the moment we forget that the most important thing, that the reason why we feed the hungry, the reason why we uh, volunteer and love and give and serve in our communities, the reason why we do all that is so that we can, at the end of the day, at the end of every action, at the end of every sandwich that we hand off maybe, say, Christ, Christ is the Savior. I, he is the reason I'm here. I want to tell you about him. Because you can feed a, a hungry stomach once, but when you fill the heart, when you transform the life, you have changed them for eternity. And we can't forget that. We can't forget that. The church needs to know its mission. The other thing is, um, it's really the fun part about preaching at a church that isn't your home church is that you get to say some things about the church's pastors that the church's pastors would never say that about themselves. And I would just say, I think, um, to ha you guys have a guy like Jeremy. Uh, he is one of a kind. Um, men like Pastor Jeremy are rare, you know, because he doesn't try to... Um, make things flashy and attractive. He is a man who is totally and, and, and truly captivated by the gospel. And, and for my personal life, I'm so thankful that I have men like Jeremy that speak truth into my life. And I, I hope you guys appreciate the fact that he is, he, he is the real deal. He is a man. You can, you can see the echo of uh, you know the conversations I have with Jeremy when I read these words from Paul because the central thing the reason why we exist here is to proclaim Christ, to make him known, to live for the gospel. From that flows everything. And you, you may not have the most flashy church or the most organized ministry or the most superstar uh, speaking abilities, but when we have Christ at the center, he is at work. His spirit is at work. It's changing people. And, and that's the wonderful thing. So appreciate what, we, what you guys have here. It is, it's, a, it's a gift. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful gift. Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I often told you and now tell you even with tears walk enemies of the cross of Christ. So a ministry that is not moved by Christ will soon be lost. And, and in the same way, a Christian life, an individual that is not broken by 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 the, the reality of sinners who need a savior. If you are not burdened by the sin that fills the world around you, if you're not burdened by the fact that people around you are going to hell, there is something wrong. If we love Christ, we will love his work in this world. We will be living to, to proclaim this life-changing glory. And third, Paul's hands, blistered and bloody for the church. <clears throat> I, I wanted to be a little explicit there um, and not literally speaking about his hands, although <clears throat> he does mention chains, I think, in this text. 
but Paul's physical life, Paul's physical pain and struggle, his whole life. Notice what he says in verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul understands that this gospel, that this message of salvation and redemption does not come softly into this world. It does not come into this world without severe opposition. You cannot be naive about that. Many, I think, um, Christians today especially want to, we want to be everybody's friend. We want to be nice. We want to be nice to everybody because Jesus was nice. Yeah, Jesus was nice, but he was also an enemy to many in his town, in his town. The gospel comes, the truth comes into a broken world, and there are sparks every time. The spread of the kingdom of Christ, the growth of the church, the work of the good news, all come into this world that is opposed to God. We cannot be naive about that. We cannot be... uh, too, too uh, rosy in our view of how we will be accepted in, our, in this world. This world is run by the one who hates the glory of God, the enemy. He is real. The sinful hearts of people are hard and thorny. It's a fact. We can see it in our own selves. Look into the mirror. We see the struggle every day that we have with sin as we try to be faithful followers of Christ. And so, the hands of the person who wants to bring that gospel to people, to their hard and thorny and broken hearts, those hands will be blistered and bloody. Those hands will be enduring discomfort and pain. And and it's amazing to see Paul, you know, this guy spends his life. I mean, he he just pours it all out. He gives everything. And, and the key thing here, I think, is so interesting, is that this text is full of two things that we oftentimes take as contradictory, joy and pain. We oftentimes separate the two. When I go through difficulties and, and trials, that is bad. And, and joyful things, joy, joy fills my life. And, and, and meaning and fulfillment where everything is going my way and everything is smooth. But life in Paul's situation here is not very smooth. And it's very difficult. It's very painful. It's very uncomfortable. And yet, every verse here is just dripping with wonder, joy, satisfaction, contentment, richness. I mean, he's a really happy guy. And he's in jail. He's chained to a Roman soldier. And those jails didn't abide by health codes or, or humanitarian laws that protected the rights of citizens. I mean, they did have rights, but not, not nearly what we know today. Real chains, real blood, real pain. For us, I think, when we think of hardships, again, we have to be realistic with ourselves. Um, we, we, we complain about the Wi-Fi being too slow on an on a airplane, 30,000 feet in the air. You know, The things we complain about today... This is not slow Wi-Fi or bad internet service or bad phone reception. The hardships here are real. The pain is real. The the, the difficulty 
fills Paul's life. And yet, when he talks about his life, he loves his life. Paul loves what he does, and he wouldn't have it any other way. He lives full throttle. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He understands that that his suffering is not just for no reason. His suffering is for the sake of the gospel. His suffering is putting on display to people, look, people, I love Christ, and this is what it costs me, and that's okay. And as the Christians see and look, they are encouraged, they are empowered. For this I toil, verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The reality is that we all agonize over something. We all, at the end of the day, the interesting thing is, if we're all really honest, we all want to be part of something that is worthy of our agony, that is worthy, that, that captivates us so much, that, 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 that draws us in so much that we are willing to go to extreme uh, measures to live out for something that gives us so much meaning and satisfaction. As human beings, that is, that is, that is a fact of history. You know, when you look at um, stories of like Nazi Germany and things like that, you see that, you, you wonder how could, how could so many people fall into such a radical set of lies and, 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 and go to such extreme measures to participate in such terrible crimes because humans will do crazy things when they are captivated by a cause. And somebody like Hitler would preach a story, a message that captivated a nation and led them off into hell, historically speaking. So, uh, we desire, and we are all captivated by something, we're all agonizing for something. We are all striving for something. Uh, there's a story, um, there's a movie, I think, I forget what it's called, I watched a couple of years ago, and it's about this young, young college student who really, really wanted to go big in his, um, in his music, musical career. He was a drummer. And, and um, the story basically follows the extreme measures that he is willing to endure to practice, to push himself, to go through difficulties. And he has this band instructor, a jazz band instructor, who is also pushing him to extremes. And, and the boy himself responds with these in, intense, intense practice sessions. And at one point, he has a bucket of cold ice water next to his drum set as he is practicing as the blisters are popping and his hands are bleeding. He's just dipping his hands into, into the water to cool it down and then keeps practicing. I mean, it's, it's a story of agony. Why? Why would somebody do that? But when you look at the human heart, that's, we are all chasing something. We are all agonizing for something. We are all desiring something, some sort of thing that promises to give us satisfaction and meaning, whether it be career, pleasure, family, material possessions, retirement, health, even ministry can be something that we are, we are striving after. What do we agonize over today? What, what grips our heart to the point that it drives us to lose sleep, to work hard, to pursue the interesting thing about Paul's agony here, that Paul, Paul endured this difficulty, 
The interesting thing about it is that it is very different from the kind of agony that fills the world today. Um, when you look at our culture, you see people who are pushing themselves to the limits. You see people who are driving their, themselves to the limits of their health, their relationships for the sake of, for example, career. Or so, so people give themselves up uh, to live for something that promises satisfaction. The pursuit of career or pleasure or material possessions, all these things in this world, they promise you satisfaction at the end. They promise you that if you get there, if you make it, then you will be happy. But you have to prove yourself. You have to work hard. You have to dedicate. You have to give yourself. You have to give away. You have to achieve. You have to make it, right? But the, the labor of Christ, the labor of the gospel is very different. The labor that Paul is showing here is very different because he is not agonizing towards satisfaction. He is agonizing in satisfaction. Paul is not trying to get to a place where he will finally feel fulfillment. If only I'm going to be this mega pastor of the Roman Empire, then I will make it. No, Paul says, I am joyful right now. This whole labor, this whole work is joyful. Paul understands that the Christian message is the only one that offers us freedom to labor because Christ has proven himself. Christ has labored on our behalf. Christ has the one, is the one who came into this world who, who proved himself. He is the one who went to the cross. He is the one who lived the perfect life. He is the one who achieved final victory. And to be a follower of Christ, he says, follow me. You get my white robes. I take your sin upon myself. I take your guilt. I take your failure. I take your pain on myself. And you are my child. And so to be a follower of Christ, to be a disciple of Christ, to be one who lives for this gospel message, we are free to labor. We are free to labor because our labor is to share the satisfaction that we already have. It is not to achieve some sort of new satisfaction. It is not something that we must prove on our own merit. We fail every day and grace is new every day. We struggle every day and we bring that to the Lord and he shapes us and works us. And as we are proclaiming, as we are living lives to love people around us, to speak gospel truth to them, to evangelize, to make Christ known in all the different areas that you are called in your career or in your family or in your schooling, everywhere that we are called, it's a life of freedom. It's a life of labor that is driven by freedom. We are free. We are, we, we are his children. We are saved. We are part of his kingdom. So what do we agonize over today? What do we run after? What has our hearts captive? When we think about the gospel, has the gospel ever captivated your heart? Has, have, have we ever made that connection that, that this is the true story of the world, that this is the reason that I am breathing today? He has me here on this planet for a mission. He has me in this world, in this culture, in this town, in this family, in this church for a reason that is connected directly to his good news. When we look at Paul's life, when we, when we see the, the wonder, the joy, the labor that fills him, that should leave an imprint on our hearts. 
we, we, we see an example of a man who doesn't just think that Jesus is real. This is a man who shows us Jesus is real. And when we look at him, and when we look at people like him in our lives, this empowers us every week to, to, to run the course, to run the race, to be inspired, to, to respect the ministers and the leaders that serve us, and to see that nothing really else at the end of the day matters. There's nothing more beautiful than Christ and what he is doing in my heart every single day, and we are privileged to be part of that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we, we thank you that you are a Savior who is not just up in heaven, uh, lofty, exalted, far away. Lord, we thank you that you are a Savior who is here. You are a Savior who is working among us. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that of all the things you could have done, of all the ways that you could have shown your glory to this world, that you decided to make yourself known in the hearts of broken sinners, Lord. And we thank you that this grace is ever new for us today. Lord, we thank you that we get to gather as the church, that we get to gather as your saints, as brothers and sisters in you, united by your blood, reminded of the power of the cross and the work that you are doing, Lord, around us in this world. Help us to be faithful disciples, Lord. Help us to check our hearts this week as we go out. Help us to ask ourselves, what is it that captivates us? What is it that drives us? What is it that, give us, that gives us energy, that gives us butterflies in our stomach to keep going, to keep running, Lord? Help us to see the glory of Christ, the beauty that you are unfolding every day as you are redeeming us, as you are taking back what is yours. You are taking back this creation, this world, our hearts, which fell away from you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace that's ever new, Lord. And help us to learn to walk this way. Help us to have the imprint of Paul's life on our hearts this week. Help us to have the example and the imprint of those around us who, who obviously follow this mold, who obviously live this way, who have this heart that is captivated by you, Lord, and help us to learn from them. Help us to learn to be captivated in our hearts that nothing else matters outside of your redeeming work, that nothing is more beautiful, more glorious, and more amo most amazing, Lord. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for this day, for this text, Lord. Amen.